In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Sin and its consequences. That is the theme that runs through today's readings. God makes a covenant with the world that he will never plunge the world into the punishment of death for sin, not as a whole anymore. But the consequences of sin remain, and they remain for us who sail in that ark, the church. And although we do get sin happening without any apparent invitation, sins that we commit without not even realizing it, which is what is especially frightening about sin, we do also get invited and we do respond from time to time, and sometimes to certain sins all the time. The invitation is issued, and we cannot apparently refuse. And any and every time the invitation, the temptation is presented, we respond in the affirmative, which means, of course, in the negative, because sin never delivers what it promises, and what sin promises to all of us is reunion and reconnection with God. At the back of every sin, this promise. The heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies at leisure, a wonderful, gritty description of the way that fallen man's mind works. The heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies, rationalizes, if it may. And there is always plenty of time to repent after one sins. Time to realize that we have been duped again, taken in by the same old lie, the same old counterfeit. We said to ourselves the last time, this will never happen again. We say to ourselves this time, it's never worked before, but maybe just this once it will be different. And this thing to which I'm invited, into which I'm invited to enter, to participate, will be the door back into the Garden of Eden. It never is, but we keep on trying. Jesus is tempted, but he alone does not sin. He goes out into the wilderness, hungry and weary, and is stalked by wild beasts who are also weary and hungry, reminding us that The creatures that were picked to go on the ark were no better or no worse than any other creatures. And as soon as they were left off the ark, or let off the ark, life went right back to the way it was before all of this happened. Nothing had changed, except we had a better genealogy to work with. Nothing had changed in the human situation, except God has said, I'm going to step back and watch this thing (laughs) play out. Is that a blessing or a curse? That's not mine to answer, but that's our reality. Jesus is tempted, but he does not sin. In Matthew and Luke, you get the fuller version of what the tempter tells Jesus, invites Jesus to do, and what Jesus says and doesn't do. But the essentials are there in Mark, as always, everything we need is in Mark. The Spirit, note this, the Spirit 
delivers Jesus into Satan's company, drives Jesus into Satan's company. And for 40 days, a biblical cue for a wilderness experience, Jesus undergoes deprivation and is stressed at his most weakest points, the pressure points for all of us, power, prestige, and possessions. He does what we so rarely do, and only when we have been tried and failed. He does nothing. He simply endures. He waits it out, as do the wild beasts, presumably. He does not make the grab for gratification, for fulfillment, for fullness. He waits it out, weary, hungry, thirsty, fed up, no doubt. Because Jesus is human, fully human, which means he has a fully human body and a fully human brain. And if you have a fully human brain, then your places of wilderness and acquiescence are embedded there, burned in by the neurons and their synapses. Every time you are tempted and and succumb, give in, go for the gratification, a cluster of synaptic, not synoptic, activity is reactivated. Every time you go for the gratification, the mind remembers it. Every time you go to do the same old thing again and again, that pathway is already there, inviting you. Nothing is ever lost from the hard drive in our heads. There is no format C for us. That's as much neuroscience as you'll get for now. <laughs> Suffice it to say that the mind is not just some passage, passive storage unit full of read-only memory that we cannot erase. It's worse than that. The mind actively rewrites its operating system to accommodate the way, any way, that you, the user, are thinking and acting whether you like it or not. The result, Romans 7. That's not on our lectionary today. You should read it every day. It is the modus operandi of the Christian. The point zero, if you like, the ground zero of operation for the Christian, the follower of Jesus, is Romans 7. You don't do the things you ought to do, and the things you don't want to do, you end up doing anyway. Modern science would call this addictive behavior. And whereas not-so-modern science would designate a certain kind of addictive personality who is ruled by disorderly attachments, that category has now been widened to include everybody. We're all addicts. So you can get caught in ruts of your own making, and you can get stuck in habitual sin, and all the willpower in the world will not set you free. Whether it is substance abuse, your morning cup of caffeine without which your day degenerates into disarray, or online shopping or online other things, or just the routines you cannot live without, having a few minutes of quiet time in the morning. It's not just the caffeine, it's sitting in your chair and having your time before the world crashes in on you. If you get that time, it's never enough. And if you don't get it, your world falls apart. Even what we would call harmless experiences, in other words, are addictive. They get control over us. 
they imprison us. You can get addicted to the things of God. You can get addicted to the Bible, to the sacraments, to social justice. The one thing that is not addictive, as far as I can figure, is prayer. Something to keep in mind. Interesting. You can pray and pray, and it will never become addictive. There's nothing you can grasp there, unlike all the others, the Bible, the sacraments, acts of social justice, things you can grab hold of and possess. No knowledge, knowing about something that can pass for openness to being known by God in prayer. Being known by God is non-addictive. The rest of it we'll try to grab hold of for ourselves. Thank you very much. Now it may be too much to call that sin, but we have made of some little ritual fixation a place to get away not just from the world and its chaotic emptiness, tohu vabohu, but to get away from God. And addiction, attachment, is all about getting away from God, getting from what other, whatever other source we can get hold of and can control the fulfillment that God will not give when we try to control him, even, even if the promise is never kept by these substitutes for long. Innocent pleasures. It's not the object of our attachment that is evil in itself, not just the Bible, the sacraments, and social justice. Virtually anything else in the world that to which people become addicted is not in itself evil. Well, there are some exceptions. But it is not the object that is our problem. It is the fact that we are attached and hooked to it. We have lost the freedom which God gave us. Our free will is bound in classical theological terms. We are enduring the bound will. But our own relentless quest for sufficiency, for fullness of being, for completeness, these are beautiful goals. God-given goals is what starts this off in the first place. We always want to be fulfilled, full of this or that so full that there is no room for anything else, for anyone else, for God. So, Lent is about fasting, being hungry, not being full, pushing back from the table, as we said on Ash Wednesday, even when you are still more than a little empty inside. One may call this reverence, and knowing and keeping within bounds, Reverence for life and the author of life, knowing when to stand back, even when you want to go in. But like Jesus, we are tempted always to complete ourselves, at least, if not creation. We are tempted and we do sin. We do reach out, we grasp, and we hold. And the hunger for God, which God has given us, a desire which only God can satisfy, leaves us still aching longing, yearning, which is not so bad, but it's hard to live like that, aching, longing, and yearning. So giving in to temptation is not just a matter of dirty thoughts leading to dirty deeds. Clean up your mind and your behavior will follow. Giving up an attachment is exactly like an addict going into withdrawal. It is like dying 
Now, the answer to temptation is very simple. Don't do it. (laughs) If you're sinning, quit it. Don't give in. Do not do the behavior that is causing you this trouble. That is the simple answer. How, you say? It is giving in, yielding, living it out that does the damage. And not just to you, but to the world around you. But when you are hooked, it's not so easy to break free. Surely that's where this whole talk is going. Gerald May, MD, a psychologist and a theologian, shares this little verbatim from a client who did manage to set himself apart from habitual sin, a very destructive pattern of sin. And his story is typical, and I quote, So I start to think about what I would like, and then I recognize the pattern. I recognize the pattern. I don't fight the fantasy off. I don't fight it. I don't put it out of my mind. I just don't indulge in it, and it goes away. For a while, I thought I could enjoy the fantasies without acting on them. How many times have we been told that? God help us. But it was not sufficient to do that. Surprise. So I simply noticed them. I noticed them. I registered them and let them pass of their own accord. It's like getting rid of an alley cat. You don't have to kick it. Just don't feed it. Martin Luther said something very different, or very much the same. Sorry, he said, you cannot stop the little birds from fluttering around your head, but you don't have to let them nest in your hair. It's like walking a ledge, May continues. You don't stay centered by fighting, by trying to wave the things away nor by trying to bottle them up. You just don't lean over the edge. You respect the boundary. You respect the limitation. You observe a kind of reverence, if you like, for your temptation, knowing that any inclination toward it is fatal. But that also means confronting the emptiness that presents itself or is present when temptation comes and then goes. Because where are you left when temptation goes? With that same aching emptiness that brought it on in the first place. That same hunger, that same nagging need for something to make my life full right now. The insidious threat that without that which tempts you, you are once again nothing. So it is not simply saying no to temptation, and it is not saying yes to the temptation, to the promise of fulfillment, of staring past it. There is a difference. It is saying yes to the ache, the hunger, the emptiness, the longing, the temptation leaves when it departs, and staring into it. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's Augustine. What is that, finally? Where is that rest to be found? When is that rest to be found? Not in this world. Not yet. 
We get tastes of it. Here in this life, as Karl Rahner, the great Roman Catholic theologian, wrote, there are no finished symphonies, no final cadences, no 5-1. Life is one long suspension, longing, holy longing, one long journey toward a home which is always on the horizon. And temptation, the empty promise that fulfillment has come, sabotages that holy longing with its promise. We need not give in, but we cannot fight temptation. We need not surrender to it either. It's like Jesus there among the wild beasts. Surely they were as hungry as he was, and they were looking at him for dinner. He did not flee them, we suppose. He did not try to defend himself or go on the attack. He simply regarded them as if they were not there. He noted them and then looked away. That's what we're called to do. The good news, God will undo all of this someday and set us free to rest in him. He wills it. He will have the last word here, even over sin, and we can count on it. The promise is given from him, and that promise is not empty. It is just not fulfilled Yet, in the space that we have now, grace, God's grace, will make itself felt if and when God will. In the end, it will all be washed away, drowned as the cleansing waters finally do their work, and this redeemed creation rises glorious in its splendor, in its fullness, with Jesus sitting on the throne right here. And we shall see him as he is and see ourselves finally as in his eyes we always were. But not until then. Amen.